Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hello, welcome to today's episode where we will continue our conversation from last week about invisible labor and dive deep into the concept of emotional labor in motherhood. So we're going to acknowledge today that while emotional labor is not gender specific, current societal norms often place the bulk of emotional labor onto mothers. And in in this episode, I want to define and validate this labor. You know, I really want to name it and I want to name all the ways it shows up, plus discuss ways on how to ease that load for mothers. I'm also going to touch on how race, class, and the patriarchal system play into this web of emotional responsibility and how we can include more men, which helps men, helps women, helps society, right? Okay, so let's get started. So like I just mentioned, emotional labor is not gender specific. And I want to start off by claim, by saying that very clearly, because to be honest, what's going to follow in the rest of this episode is going to sound pretty gender specific. But look, I want to be clear, I'm not going to fall into some essentialist trap that claims that women and mothers are more biologically nurturing. So they take on more emotional labor because they're just naturally better at it. No, no. Women and mothers have been socially conditioned to be the caretakers and providers of emotional support for their families because that's the way they were raised. So this episode is meant to acknowledge that right now, this is the way things are, sadly. And while our role as rebel mothers is to work to change that in society, we also want to support and help the individual mothers of today. Absolutely, I want to encourage fathers to provide emotional labor. And hopefully you can share this episode with your partner so you're both on the same page for what it means to provide emotional support for the family. I, myself, I profoundly hope that I'm raising my two boys to be emotionally available fathers. The truth is that emotional labor is still often performed by the mother. It's real, it's exhausting, and so today I want to name it, I want to validate it, and I want to talk about ways to make it easier on mothers because motherhood is what this podcast is all about. So let's define it. What is emotional labor specific to motherhood? Emotional labor in motherhood refers to the invisible, often unrecognized, and emotionally taxing work that mothers undertake to nurture and support their children. It is the ongoing effort required to ensure a child's well-being, including providing love, empathy, and patience. So this might look like soothing a baby at 3 a.m., helping a toddler navigate their fourth tantrum of the day, or you know, offering guidance to a teenager who is just rejected by their date. Mothers also carry the weight of worrying about their children's safety, worrying about their education, just thinking about their overall happiness, all of which can be emotionally draining. You know, we're, we're out there, we're reading books about brain development and emotional intelligence in children, or 
maybe I have to contain fury in an email that I'm typing to the teacher because, you know, my child came home with like an incident in PE. Or maybe I'm lying in bed worrying that my kids don't have any friends, right? All of these things that moms do, the parents do, it's all emotional labor and it all takes energy. And here's something else to note. Moms today perform way more emotional labor than previous generations. We are way more concerned about our kids' emotional well-being than ever before in society. So everything that you hear from attachment parenting, gentle communication, breaking generational trauma, teaching kids about consent, healing and raising our own inner child, you know, grounding and regulating our nervous systems, all of these things are examples of emotional labor that I do in my daily work as a mother that my mother rarely had to think about or even had vocabulary for. I mean, it was only a few generations ago where it was children were seen and not heard, right? Spanking was a thing. So we, we've come a long way. It's good, right? Now we understand the attachment theory that says that a child's early experiences with their parents do have a profound impact on their emotional wellness and relationship skills as adults. And while this is critically important, it also puts a hell of a lot more pressure on parents to get it right from the very beginning. Attachment parenting, or, you know, you could call it, I've seen it called mindful parenting, intentional, uh, conscious, respectful, like there's no real definition out there, but it emphasizes building these strong emotional bonds between parents and children. And this requires a continuous and emotionally invested effort. It's practices like co-sleeping, baby wearing, you know, responsive feeding. It's really hands-on when they're infants, all of which demand a high degree of emotional presence to understand and respond to your baby's cues. Now, gentle communication, which, which comes into play as they get a little bit older, it's still part of attachment parenting. It's the practice of maintaining a compassionate and respectful dialogue with children. And yes, this can be emotionally exhausting and draining because it requires parents to regulate their own emotions first and effectively, even during really hard, challenging moments, in order to validate children's emotions with empathy and patience. You have to practice active listening and say things in a way that are sensitive to your child's developmental stage and their own emotional well-being. So gentle communication, in, instead of issuing commands like, we have to go to a store, please put on your shoes. Gentle communication sounds more like, hey, it looks like you're having big feelings about not wanting to put your shoes on. I get it. It's hard to have to stop playing with your toys. And you're really keeping yourself calm, validating children's emotions. You're showing empathy. You're showing patience. But then if you slip up and you lose your patience and you're like, oh my God, for crying out loud, get your shoes on. We're going to be late. Then you have to repair the broken trust by later on saying, I'm so sorry. I'm sure that felt scary. I'm working on staying calm with my own big feelings. I love you. That last sentence was taken verbatim from Dr. Becky's Instagram page, which her page is amazing. It is a beautiful example of all things gentle communication. And I love it. But it also takes a high degree of emotional labor. Because listen, I'm not saying these practices are bad or they're not worth the emotional investment. They absolutely are worth it. Attachment parenting and gentle communication can be really fulfilling, but it's important to acknowledge that they require a continuous investment of emotional labor. We're constantly checking our own state, 
when we're around the kids and we're constantly checking in with them and their emotional state as well. And this is behavior that many of us were not raised with ourselves. So sometimes it feels like we're making it up as we go along. In fact, on that note, another form of emotional labor that's kind of related to all this is navigating advice, all the advice that's out there about raising children, especially early on. So, you know, this is also comes into the mental load and and invisible labor, all the researching and everything. And so much of it is conflicting. Like you'll hear, get them on a sleep schedule or no, nope, you should co-sleep or nope, no, you need to make sure they can sleep independently. You hear, make sure your child knows they can count on you to always be there, but also develop appropriate boundaries so that they learn how to navigate life on their own. So, so much of this advice is conflicting and confusing that it's exhausting. (laughs) And, you know, maybe we can look to our own parents for advice, but sometimes that's actually more harmful than helpful. Because another form of emotional labor that everyone can probably benefit from is examining our own personal ancestry for behavior patterns that have been passed down through generations, then deciding, are these behaviors things that we want to continue doing, or do we want to stop doing them with our children? This is often referred to as breaking generational trauma, and it is absolutely a profound and, you know, often overlooked form of emotional labor. People who are striving to break free from generational trauma must confront sometimes painful memories and actively work to reshape their behaviors. So, you know, this can look like going to see a therapist to talk about your family's history of addiction. Maybe you are now setting clear boundaries with older family members about behavior that you do not tolerate in your own home. Maybe you're addressing cultural or racial trauma. Identifying and stopping generational trauma is extremely emotionally labor-intensive and should be recognized as such. And this brings me to another point I wanted to make sure I addressed. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about it in last week's episode, but it's super important, which is a class and race-based analysis of invisible and emotional labor. Because the reality is different identities of people will experience these different types of labor differently. So racism significantly compounds the mental load and emotional labor of motherhood, particularly for mothers of color. These mothers often need to navigate racially biased healthcare systems, educational inequalities, you know, the fear of racial profiling. Um, They have to bear the emotional labor of explaining racial injustice to their children and prepare them for the realities of racism in society. So this emotional toll, coupled with the constant concern for their children's safety and well-being, contributes significantly to the mental load and also is a form of emotional labor. But I want to note, while I've given lots of examples of how invisible and emotional labor show up in the home, Bell Hooks notes in her book, uh, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, that, okay, I'm going to read it, quote, historically, black women have identified work in the context of family as humanizing labor, work that affirms their identity as women, as human beings showing love and care, the very gestures of humanity, white supremacist ideology claimed black people were incapable of expressing, end quote. So again, just because this labor is invisible and often limited to the domestic sphere, that doesn't mean it's always oppressive or unrewarding. It can be hugely rewarding and hugely humanizing. Um, Racism also shows up in white-bodied mothers, right? Because white-bodied mothers bear responsibility for educating their children and themselves about racism and then actively working to address their own unconscious biases. Obviously, a much lower load for white-bodied women than mothers of color, but I just wanted to put that out there. 
And then when it comes to invisible or reproductive labor, underpaid domestic and caregiving work very much needs to be addressed as a class issue. 90% of domestic workers are women, and they tend to be older than other workers. Over half of them are either Black, Hispanic, or Asian American, or Pacific Islander. The typical domestic laborer is paid under $14 an hour, and they are three times as likely to be living in poverty as other workers. So all of this points to a societal disregard for the importance and the value of care work. And I read a comment once uh, in a feminist mothering space about the mental labor of researching, interviewing, and hiring a house cleaner. And well, yes, okay, I can see that. This comment was made with very little acknowledgement of the class privileges inherent in that statement. You know, one of the major critiques of the white feminist movement in the 1960s was the complete lack of awareness of the class and racial inequalities regarding domestic labor, right? Liberal feminists encouraged middle-class women to go get college degrees and careers, which they were able to do by hiring household help. They were able to offload some of their invisible and mental labor onto paid domestic workers, which raises the question, to whom do these paid workers offload their invisible and mental labor? I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't have the answers to this problem. Sorry, spoiler alert, I can't fix all the world's problems in this episode. But we can start by being aware of the situation, by organizing to socialize women's private labors and bring them into the public domain by creating, for example, a free 24-hour publicly funded community-controlled child care, maybe laundering and cleaning services, all staffed collectively by well-compensated workers. Then individual mothers too, They can also ensure that if they are hiring domestic help to help offset invisible labor, they are paying a livable and equitable wage, including enough to fund retirement and health insurance coverage. A quick break in our programming to let you know that Rebel Mothers is brought to you by Mother Bloom Coaching, now accepting new clients for 2024. Imagine yourself in three months, happier and more patient with your kids, confidently setting boundaries with family, and actively contributing to a more equitable future for all mothers and children. It's life coaching tailored for rebel moms, and Mother Bloom covers it all. Work-life balance, partner support, generational healing, and more. Our live one-on-one coaching calls become a weekly self-care treat just for you. Plus, enjoy an exclusive friends and family discount when you sign up by the end of the year. Ready to elevate your mom game in 2024? Visit suzyfishleader.com and click on Motherhood Coaching to join the motherhood revolution. Okay, so that's my class and race analysis of invisible labor and the mental load. So now let's get back to emotional labor. I don't want to get too far off track. Hopefully some of the earlier examples helped you identify where emotional labor is showing up in your life. But how did we get here? Hey, it's our good old friend, the patriarchy. (laughs) The fact that mothers are expected to be attuned to their children's emotional needs You know, we're expected to anticipate potential issues, create a safe and loving environment. It's deeply rooted in traditional gender roles. And as a result, mothers often bear the responsibility for emotional labor because it's believed that they should be nurturing, empathetic, and emotionally available. We talked about this a lot last week when we talked about invisible labor and the mental load as a whole. But a point I want to make today is that the gender division of emotional labor is further made worse by a lack of support for fathers in many patriarchal societies. When I talk about dismantling patriarchy, I do so 
because I understand how it harms men as well. Right, society's rigid gender norms often mean that men are discouraged from openly expressing their concerns or their emotions, right? They're expected to conform to traditional ideals of masculinity that includes stoicism, that ideal of like the rugged, independent man. I mean, I feel like sometimes these traditional gender norms are harder on men than they are on women, right? This pressure can lead to men completely hiding or shutting down their emotions, which not only affects their mental health, but it continues this generational cycle of emotional isolation for men and boys when they don't see their fathers cry. Men also suffer from a lack of sensitive and empathetic role models who are comfortable handling the emotions of children. Most dads on TV and in movies are depicted as like incompetent fools who need mom to straighten out their messes. This isn't just annoying, which it is super annoying. It's also shaping and impacting the way we think about fathers. Liz Plank, who is phenomenal and wrote an excellent book about patriarchy and masculinity called For the Love of Men, she says it like this, quote, while women have been taken seriously as workers, men have yet to really be taken seriously as caregivers. All this time, we were so focused on getting people comfortable with the idea that women work, but that revolution was never followed by a movement saying it's okay for men not to, end quote. Now, we see millennial fathers are more involved than any other generation of fathers, but even still, we're struggling against these deeply held stereotypes against men and caregiving. So as a rebel mother, I want you to ask yourself, would you hire a teenage boy to be the babysitter for your children? And just sit with that reaction for a minute and ask yourself, why? Why would you? Why wouldn't you? And just note, if we are not teaching our boys to be nurturing caregivers to small children, how do we expect them to do it when they're fathers? Okay, so yes, encouraging men to take on more caregiving. But here are some other ideas on how we can ease the weight of emotional labor in motherhood. Um, number one, you could start by seeking professional help for yourself or for any member of your family that seems to have a lot of emotional challenges, right? Finding a therapist or counselors to address the emotional and mental health needs for mothers and the entire family will help everybody. It, I'm a big proponent of hiring some help where you need it. Two, go back to the basics. So, you know, make sure that you're eating healthy food, you're drinking enough water, you're getting enough sunshine and fresh air, you're taking your vitamins, you're relaxing and pursuing creative interests when you have the time. A well-rested and emotionally balanced mother is better equipped to handle emotional labor. Do what you can to take care of yourself first. Number three, education. So invest, just like you would hire professional help, you can invest in parenting education that teaches emotional intelligence, uh, teaches empathy and effective communication skills. This can be books, podcasts, online courses. There's so much out there. Uh, Dr. Becky, uh, Good Inside Parenting, great place to start. I also highly recommend the books and resources around the highly sensitive, pe highly sensitive persons. That's been extremely helpful for my family. There's just, there's so many resources out there. So educate yourself on emotional intelligence and empathy and just get better at it. Uh, number four, boundaries. So teach your children age appropriate independence and responsibility, which will reduce the emotional labor that mothers have to invest in micromanaging every aspect of their lives. There is a lot of weight and pressure on mothers to be heavily involved in their children's lives, but 
speaking from experience, my children have over and over again proven themselves to be far more capable and responsible than I give them credit for. Which, of course, brings up a fear that one day they're going to leave me and I will die sad and alone, but we don't need to spiral right now. (laughs) We'll save that for another time. Okay, so to wrap this all up, emotional labor and motherhood is complex and demanding and it transcends gender roles and it deserves recognition and support. So as mothers today are navigating that, you know, the ever-changing demands of attachment parenting and gentle communication and breaking generational trauma and everything they're doing to support their families, they're dealing with an increased emotional workload compared to previous generations. And it's also essential to acknowledge the intersectionality of this labor, both invisible labor and emotional labor, particularly the additional challenges faced by mothers of color and the impact of class disparities. So furthermore, dismantling the patriarchal norms that perpetuate these imbalances is crucial, along with encouraging fathers to actively participate in emotional labor. By addressing these issues and working collectively, we can strive for a more equitable and emotionally supportive world for all parents and their children. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at suzyfishleader.com. And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.